Hi, this is Ben Lowe with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're concluding our series, Finding Pleasure in God, with a message titled the same, Finding Pleasure in God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 50, verses 8 to 23, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. We're to fear God, rightly so. We're to obey God, rightly so. We're to trust God and believe Him again, rightly so. But and this is so very surprising to many, is that we are to delight ourselves in God, to find Him and Him alone our highest joy. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. Now that's an imperative, it's a command. God commands us, we are to find delight in Him. Now does that sound strange to your ears? I mean, how realistically is a command to rejoice in the Lord even remotely realistic and remotely possible? I think it's a good question. It demands a thoughtful answer. See, from my perspective, C.S. Lewis, I think, has given the best possible answer to that question. Listen to what he says. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motor horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds are praised most while cranks, misfits, and malcontents are praised least. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Now, he goes on to say, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that was magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about praising God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what we indeed can't help doing about everything else we value. See, we've been studying Psalm 50. And if you've been tracking with me, you should now see why the people being addressed were not praising God. They thought of God as a needy God. They, they thought that their sacrifices in the temple, sacrifices they were commanded to do, were done because God was hungry, and they were feeding God just as the pagans were feeding their gods. They, they conceived of God just like that so many of us do as well. Our God, we say, needs our service. He needs our sacrifice. He even needs our fellowship and our prayers. And so what do we get when we think that way? Well, life is spent doing the things that God demands because we've assumed all of our lives that our God, in some fashion, needs what we offer. And so we sacrifice and obey and we even pray, but there's one thing we don't do. <laughs> we don't delight ourselves in God. I mean, after all, the list of burdens just is growing. 
And in response, the great God of heaven says, and here I'm reading Psalm 50, verses 9 to 13, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast in the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And by the way, have you ever noticed how similar this is to what the Apostle Paul told the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens? See, I've already quoted twice before, but I've got to do it again. Acts 17, 24 to 25 records Paul as saying, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so if that's so, God is not served by human hands, God doesn't need our sacrifice, he already owns everything, then what is it that God wants of us? Look at Psalm 50, 14 and 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. There are in this passage three things that God wants of us. The first is to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, I covered that in yesterday's message, so let's deal with the last two things today. God wants you to fulfill vows you've made to him. Now, what does that mean? When we read through the First Testament, we find that there are references made to people who make vows. But here it's interesting. There is no place where vows are commanded, but vows are regulated. So, for instance, listen to Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So what is a vow? A vow is a promise. In making a vow, you bind yourself to either pay something or sacrifice something, act in a given way. I mean, the list of things are almost endless. You know, in our day, we speak of marriage vows. Remember, if you're married, I assume that no one forced you to take those vows, which included the words, till death do us part. But now that you've made them, you're obligated to keep them. You might also remember that in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and others had found all manner of creative ways to break their vows. So if you took an oath, which is a vow, according to the Pharisees, it would make a difference if you swore either by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem. See, the actual wording of the vow had everything in the world to do with whether or not you could find a loophole or an escape in which allowed you no longer to keep the vow if it was inconvenient. So vows and oaths and promises, I mean, all these things became a matter of technicalities for the Pharisees and truth was being distorted. But in Psalm 50, God demands that if you make a vow to him, you are obligated to keep it. There will be no wiggling out from under it. God demands it. But if God doesn't need my vows, and if my vows don't serve him, then why is this demanded of me? And the answer is that we need to do this. See, you can't find God to be an object of your delight if you are being frivolous with God. God demands that you treat him as holy, for he is holy. It's a sacred thing to utter a vow to God. It's not demanded of you, but once you make it, you are required to display the attitude in your heart that shows that you honor the one before whom you've made that vow. Then God requires a third thing, and this one really is quite striking. God wants us to call upon him in the day of trouble, and immediately we are led to understand the importance of this. See, God doesn't need us. We need him. 
God doesn't call on us in the day of his trouble. We call on him in the day of our trouble. See, God wants us to come to him for more unmerited gifts, more favor, more deliverance. Tell God how needy you are and you'll do well. Declare to God how able he is to meet your needs and you will glorify him. See, if you don't understand that, you you misunderstand grace. See, I wonder how many of us have thought that we serve God for God's sake. If you still think that, you ought to read Deuteronomy 10 verse 13. It says that we keep the commands of God for our own good, it says. Or listen to Jeremiah 32 verse 39. It says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. See, I hope you see what obedience actually does. It's not for God's good, but it's for our good. If you refrain from theft and adultery and murder, you're doing good to yourself. God gave you his commands much like a manufacturer of an automobile gives instructions for the the good of the vehicle. See, God knows that we will destroy our lives, and so he gives us the commands as an action of grace. I know that some of us are still balking at that idea, but we say, are we not called upon to serve God? Well, yeah. The Bible in numerous places tells us to do so, but this is key. We are not serving God for God's good. So you imagine going to a doctor because let's say you've been diagnosed with with cancer. The doctor that you're seeing has a reputation of being the leading specialist in the world in the field of oncology. And you see him and he tells you what he will do, and he also tells you what you must do. He tells you that you must submit to his regimens. He tells you what you can and what you can't do. He demands that you be obedient to him, for if you are, he will heal you. Listen, God knows that we as as human beings have an illness far more serious than cancer. We have sin. We're sinful. The wages of sin is death. And God not only sent his son to be our savior, in the process of saving us, he's teaching us how to live. He's telling us to obey him and serve him and glorify him and give thanks and keep our vows, not because he needs this, but because we do. The great physician is healing us of our hellishness and teaching us to be the children of God. Have you heard? Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again are inviting you on a cruise. February 7th to the 16th, 2020, we'll be setting sail for the Southern Caribbean. And we want you to join us for a nine-night cruise adventure that will leave you not only physically refreshed, but spiritually as well. Experience ports of call, including Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao. Dr. John Newfeld will be joining us, providing amazing Bible teaching that will inspire and deepen your walk with Jesus. Phil Calloway will lift your spirits and perhaps make you laugh in a way you've never laughed in years. And be encouraged by the music of friends Shane and Angela Weeb. It's a fantastic opportunity for a vacation while experiencing great Bible teaching, laughter, and fellowship. So for more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or head over to backtothebibletours.ca. So let's stop the nonsense. We're not feeding God. God's feeding us. 
We're not helping God, he's helping us. We're not offering to God the grace of our fellowship. He's offering that grace to us. He has no needs and we are overwhelmed with need. And in grace, he extends his mercy. And once we understand, we will find him lovely beyond degree. See, in my mind, Psalm 50 could very easily have ended right here in verse 15, but, but it actually doesn't. Until now, Psalm 50 began by God issuing a summons to the human race. They were to witness a court case in which God was to enter into judgment against his people. The charge is that they had misrepresented God, making him out to be a needy God. But as I've said, the psalm is not done. I'm reading now Psalm 50, verses 16 to 22. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. And you thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Now, it's clear that these verses are also speaking to the Jewish people, not to the the Gentiles. The Gentiles are merely commanded to watch this court case. Now, we know that because only the Jews would, according to verse 16, recite God's commands. And what we see in the last half of Psalm 50 is the consequence of idolatry. When we think that God is a needy God, we think that God is much like we are. We imagine that we have a symbiotic relationship with God, and God does some things for us, and we do some things for God. And the consequence of that kind of thinking leads those of us who think this way to be cavalier with the commands. I mean, after all, once human beings think of God as a lesser being— I mean, the idea of holiness and infinite loveliness and perfect righteousness, I mean, that no longer permeates their thinking. So let's look at the details. Now, first notice that the wicked in Israel recite God's laws, but hate discipline and cast his words behind their backs. So what does it mean to hate correction or to hate discipline? Look again at verse 17. To hate discipline is to refuse the commands of God. And as examples, Psalm 50 provides us with three illustrations. First, the illustration of the eighth command, you shall not steal. I mean, did you notice verse 7 says, you see a thief and you're pleased with him. And then secondly, the seventh command, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 18 says, you keep company with adulterers. And finally, the ninth command, you shall not bear false witness. Verse 19 says, you give free reign to your tongue and you frame deceit. So let me pick one of those three examples and make an application for modern day Christians. Let's say you are an individual who says, you know, Jesus Christ is my Savior. I'm a believer. You recite God's statutes, which means that you say, Jesus is not only my Savior, I believe that he's the Son of God. But let's say you're committing adultery, and let's say it's you. Right now, you are sleeping with someone who's not your wife or your husband. Listen to God's judgment. What right do you have to take God's covenant on your lips? Now, someone, and I've heard tons of people say this, they say, well, I'm just trusting in grace. And by that, they mean, yeah, I mean, I sin, but I believe Jesus' blood will cover me. So watch Psalm 50, verse 21. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. In other words, you thought that I, by the fact that I hadn't condemned you yet, am just like you are and think this is no big deal. Listen to Paul's words, and it's found in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, the only reason why you've not gone to hell right now is that God is giving you time to wake up from your madness and repent. Turn around, submit to him. Look again at verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. If you hate correction and you've missed grace, and wrath is just a matter of time. But you say, well, don't we all sin? Well, yes, we do. But it was Jonathan Edwards who said that the difference between the man or the woman who has found grace and the one who hasn't is that that man or woman who's found grace refuses to lie down in his or her sins. No matter if he or she has fallen into the same sin a hundred times, he or she will not lie down in it or submit to it. Grace gives him the courage to fight with all his worth against sin. He will never call evil good. He will never make excuses for his sin. He will name his sin as something that's appalling to God. And he will learn by the power of the Holy Spirit to learn to say no to sin and yes to obedience. You see, we underestimate God when we hate correction. Secondly, we underestimate God when we make peace with sin. Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In other words, if you today are justifying your disobedience to the commands of God, listen, woe to you. You think grace will cover it, but you've missed the truth that the commands themselves were grace, God's goodness to you, and you would not have them. You have thrown the offer of grace into the trash. You didn't know that you needed God, for you were drowning in your sin. Don't you ever make peace with your sin. Love the correction of God. If you listen to the voice of God through Scripture and then hear the Word of God condemn sex outside of marriage or condemn theft or gossip or whatever, listen to the voice of God's Spirit and let the words of God pierce your heart and condemn your sin. Now to the last verse in Psalm 50, verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Now, we've noticed that when our God is a needy God and when we conceive of him as anything less than all glorious and the sum of all of our affections and desires, well, then we naturally begin to think we are rendering service to God, that we offer God something. And if you want to continue to find God to be your highest joy, there is a solution to that. If right now you're having difficulty in being filled with delight at the thought of God, well, Psalm 50 offers you a prescription and you've got to follow it. There are two things you just have to do. Number one, become thankful. You know, this first bit of counsel goes to those who are in danger of believing that, that God relies on them. Your solution, sacrifice thank offerings to God. Recognize your need of God and begin to thank him for everything. Make a list of everything you have from God, from the air you breathe, the health you enjoy, the, the money you have, the people around you who love you, the fact that God has allowed you to be in his service, the fact that he's not treated you as your sins deserve, and right now, as, as you hear my voice, be overwhelmed that you are not in hell. God sent his son to bear your punishment. Think about that. 
and learn to make a discipline of giving thanks and expand your list of things to be thankful for. Now, number two, welcome God's commands as his gracious gift. Ask God to change your heart and give you a heart that loves his commands. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. I mean, say to the Lord, would you change my attitude? And would you change my heart? Help me welcome those good commands which you gave for my well-being. You know, years ago, Reader's Digest told a story of the late Harvey Pinnock. Harvey Pinnock loved golf, and he had a, a red spiral notebook where he kept his observations about golf. They were observations he never showed anyone except his son. But in 1991, he showed his observations to a writer who said it was worth publishing and sent it in to Simon & Schuster. A little later, the writer left word with Pinnock's wife that Simon & Schuster would publish it, but there would be an advance of $90,000. And the writer never heard back from Pinnock, and he finally spoke to him. And Pinnock said, well, look, I've had lots of medical bills anyway. I don't have $90,000. And then the writer had to explain that, that Harvey didn't have to pay $90,000, but that Simon & Schuster had agreed to pay $90,000 up front. See, don't you see? That's what God is. His beauty, His glory, His commands, His grace, His intervention in your life. It's not a cost that you have to pay. It's not a burden that you have to bear. Haven't you heard the good news? God has not given you a horrible burden. He has given you the gift of grace. That gift is himself and his glory. To have the only God intervene in your life is worth more than $90,000 or $9 billion. This is your life, and this is the only good that you have. And so, what can you do but to find pleasure in God? Thanks again, John. Now, this whole idea of pleasure in God, is it possible that we don't find pleasure in God sometimes because we have this idea that, that we have to serve Him, that we have to fulfill His needs, and there's a burden, this burden on us all the time, so we just don't find that pleasure? Yeah, we, I think many of us have this inbuilt idea that we are providing something for God rather than that the chief end in life is to, to enjoy God forever, that God has created us for himself, that if I achieve nothing else in life but to find my moment-by-moment -moment delight in him, that in itself is a life that's well-lived. So somehow we need to uh, loose ourselves from this legalism that just exists in there, and we need to move to the area of delight. And Ben, I've got to say, when we finally get there, man, that makes the faith attractive because that's what people desperately want for themselves. What a great thing it would be, finding pleasure in God. Back to the Bible Canada, we teach the Bible. Heidi wrote in to say, I discovered your program last summer, and since then, well, I've learned so much from the expository teaching of the Bible. Well, thanks, Heidi. You know, it's hearing the stories of friends like you that assures us that the Bible teaching program is making a difference. If you believe in the importance of sharing the Word of God across our nation, perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift to support Back to the Bible Canada this month, or consider becoming a monthly partner. Your regular gift ensures that the daily Bible teaching program is heard in your community and right across the country. Your gift of any amount allows the Word of God to reach those searching for truth. 
To send a one-time gift or to become a monthly partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.